that was kind of abrupt, wasn't it? Somebody said, oh, uh uh-oh, Ron's speaking. We better get him up here quick. He felt the vibrations over there. I've been looking forward to this time with you this morning. Let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Father, that this morning as we involve ourselves with what you would have us to do, study your word, learn your heart, see the great wisdom that the God that we love and serve has and has given to us. May we bless your name in this time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're going to be looking at a large portion of Scripture, as is the case here at Boulevard Bible Chapel. Uh, Everybody is always privileged to have a large portion to sort of uh, try to get try to get through and and develop this morning we're going to look at uh, probably one of if not of course there's many the most one of the most intriguing portions of scripture you know the end of this present age and the entry into eternal eternity the eternal state we'll be looking at uh, Romans on uh, Romans Revelation uh, 20, 21, and 22. Obviously, there is a lot there, so we're going to glean over much of it. But we want to pick out maybe some key thoughts. This is going to be kind of a panoramic. You know, uh, I have that on my my iPhone, a panoramic. So you take that panoramic. Then when you look at it, you learn things that maybe you didn't see before. And that's what we hope to do here this morning. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 20. I'm going to stick as close to my notes as possible. Um, I actually slaved over this, and I actually have 20 pages of notes, but you're not going to get them all. All right? We're not going to do that. Uh, We're just going to try to pick out what we can. And we're going to look at a couple of things. In Revelation uh, uh, chapter 20, and this is just a tremendous portion of scripture you know the the hope of the world is the return or at least the hope of the church is the return of Jesus Christ and his establishment of his glorious kingdom here on earth that's what our hope is is that your hope that's my hope and you know we know that originally the scriptures teach us that God created a paradise, that the world was a paradise. And the scriptures reveal here all the way on the other end that he's going to bring that paradise back in the role of his kingdom, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we enter into this chapter, chapter 20, we want to just look at the sequences of Revelation and by the way, even in this chapter, you see that it's chapters. These last three chapters are chronological. Most of Revelation, apart from those parentheses, is a chronological story of the end of the present age judgment and then the introduction into the final stage of redemptive history called the millennium. And I think our biggest challenge on that is knowing how to spell it. But uh, the, the final stage of millennium, when that's completed, that is the final uh, work of God through history in his redemptive effort or his redemptive work. You know, we, up at camp, something somebody mentioned is God, God's history, the history that God has is linear. It goes from one point to the other. It's not cyclical. You've heard the term, what goes around comes around. God doesn't work like that. He doesn't work like that. He starts somewhere and he finishes. And we're going to be looking at that finishing point. First, the finishing redemptive history of God and then into his eternal state. But in Revelation, in chapter 1, it, it introduces us to the to the book of the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. So um, 
Jesus Christ, he's moving in the church in chapters one, two and three, and he's writing the letters to the churches. So we could say that chapters one, two and three deal with the age of the church. And of course, that's the age that we're in now. And then from there, we're transported to chapters four and five and we're transported into heaven. And the scene, it's a a wonderful, glorious scene there. And and not just in general, but because something is about to happen. Chapters four and five begin an anticipation. We know something's about to happen um, and that something is going to be judgment. And then we chapter four and five, it shows us that uh, heaven is filled with the anticipation uh, where things will be readied and the Lord will act in the world. And then when we come to chapter six, um, from chapter six all the way through chapter 18, you have the judgments. You remember that? And we've went over that um, here in the past few months. You know, you, you have the judgments. There's there's a great judgment. And it, it's unfolded in the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. And it ends with the Holocaust, a, a very uh, a horror called the day of the Lord, which uh, God's final furies poured out. And then last week, um, in conclusion, you, there we came to chapter 19 with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ as he comes to the earth. He destroys all of the armies right, and all the unbelievers. And then we come to Revelation chapter 20. And by the way, last week, I, I left a little bit early. We got home and I was talking with her. I said, so how was, how was the study today? She said, it was really good, but it was scary. So, <laughs> so, and even to the believer, to think of those judgments, the fierceness of the wrath that God, de- that God deals out in his judgment, it's a scary thing. So, When we look at all of God's redemptive purposes since the fall of man, it culminates here where we are in his kingdom, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, paradise regained. You know, the world's looking for paradise. People are looking for the fountain. Who was it? Ponce de Leon came looking for the fountain of youth. And and even uh, Columbus was looking for, you know, paradise. They were all looking for paradise. Well... There is a paradise, but it's not going to be found here. Not like it is now, right? There is one, but it's not going to be. So redemptive history will will culminate in the kingdom of the Lord, paradise, that wonderful paradise. And and the the glorious paradise regained the king. This is a 1,000-year period called, we're looking at here in chapter 20, called the millennium. The 1,000-year, it's the end of... The thousand year period is the end of human history as we know it. It's the end of God's linear history. Okay, and after that thousand years and the kingdom is completed and everything that we know and how we know it now in this created order, the way it will be completely destroyed according to the word of God. It will not be like it is now. Okay, and. The reason why is because it's tainted with sin. The world is tainted with sin. And, 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 and even during this millennial period, we're going to learn that even as Christ reigns and he's reigning over in the millennial period, a renewed, regenerated, restored earth, right, and, and universe, and, and, it's, and it, bear, it still bears the marks of sin. Even in the millennium and after the thousand years, the Lord will destroy it completely. And this is what we're going to look at here this morning. And then we will enter into the eternal kingdom of God. So let's look at this thousand year period real quick. And what we're going to what I hope to do is kind of just break it up a little bit. First thing you see in verses um, one through three is Satan is bound and then in verses 4, 5, and 6, we see the saints reigning, right? And then again in um, verses 7 through 9, Satan is released, okay? And a great lesson 
that God will deliver to us in that, right? All right. This thousand-year kingdom, it's a subject, the 20th chapter. And by the way, in the scriptures talk about this in many other places, uh, in the New, just in the New Testament, okay? Uh, it's, called, it's called, in Matthew 19, the regeneration, Matthew 19, 28. In Acts 3, it's called the times of refreshing and the times of restitution, Right. And and the dispensation of the fullness of times in Ephesians chapter one. And there's a whole lot of other references to this time and in the Old Testament as well. We won't take time to go over those. You could look them up yourself. But let's look first at the removal of Satan in verses one and three. We are introduced to the kingdom. The first thing that happens is Satan is removed. And it says here. An angel coming down from heaven having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And that's very concise, immediate, dramatic, right? Um, we're coming out of the, the, the battle of Armageddon, and now God is going to begin to close up that part of history. So the first thing that happens in the kingdom to come, the millennial kingdom, and, it, this, and this gives it its character, is the removal of Satan, and, and along with all his little minions, too. There's a movie out, The Minions, right? Well, they'll all be gone, too, right? Satan and the minions. Anyway, that wasn't too funny. So Satan being removed, he's going to have this is going to have an immense impact on the world, isn't it? It's going to have an immense impact on the life in the kingdom. And he's not going to be the God of this age anymore. The prince of this world, as the Bible describes him, the prince of the power of there. He's going to be out of the picture. And you think, wow, that's going to be wonderful, isn't it? So that's what we saw in those first three verses. Then in verse four through six. Um, we're, we're introduced to the reign of the saints during that millennium period. From the move, move, removal of Satan to the reign of the saints. He says in verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them. These are, these are the saints. And judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and not received the mark on their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So you have all the saints there, Old Testament saints. You have the saints who lived during uh, the church age with Christ on earth. The New Testament saints, you have even the tribulation saints are there. And, and they're all there and they're reigning with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 5. Here's an exclusion. The unsaved sinners will not be there. Okay, the rest of the dead don't come to life till the thousand years are completed. The rest of the dead don't come back until that thousand years is over, according to verse 11. According to verse 11, it says, And when I saw the great right throne and him who sat on it from the face of those of the earth and the heaven, Fled away, and there was found no place. Well, actually, no, that was the wrong reference. But they will be raised then, even the ungodly, will be after the thousand-year reign. So we're trying to put this into the chronological order. It says in verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Those who are there, the believers, it says they're blessed and they're holy. And it says in the second death has no power over us. So what is this second death and what is this first resurrection? Well, there's not a there's there's nowhere where it says this is the first resurrection. This is the second resurrection. Right. But I think the idea here is, is that there is a resurrection plan. OK. And part of the resurrection plan is. A resurrection, right, and a second death. A first resurrection, first is a resurrection, right, and the second event will be the death of the ungodly. 
Okay, and and it it's it's the second death. It's it's the death described in verse fourteen. And the death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The second death, lake of fire, it's eternal hell. But we will be priests to God. We will be priests before God and, and Christ will, will, will reign and will reign with him for a thousand years. Right now, Christ reigns where? In heaven and in our hearts, right? But then we will reign with him. And then we come to the third point in verse um, 7. From the removal of Satan to the reign of the saints and then the return of Satan. As we talked back in verse 3 that he would come back. He'd be released for a short time. And look at and here's what it says. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. And, and we know what happens. You know, he comes out of his And by the way, when he comes out, you know, we put people in prison today. And what's the purpose of it? Is it just penal? Are we just getting rid of them? We're hoping for what? Rehabilitation, right? Well, Satan's in prison. And guess what? He comes out and he's the same old Satan. He's the same one from the garden. He's the same one at Calvary. He is the same old Satan, the deceiver. It says here that when a thousand years of Satan will be released and, and it's, it's horrible and frightening things begin to occur when he's. And by the way, this is at, during the millennium period, the end of redemptive history. Satan is released. And you would say, well, why did God do that? Why didn't he just keep him in prison? Well, we learn a great, great lesson from this. You see, even though there was, I'm going to just read this. Even though there is comprehensive, because I couldn't say this on my own, culture, cultural morality, even though Christ rules with a rod of iron, even though there is massive evidence that Christ is in fact God in human flesh and the ruler of the world, even though theology won't be disputed, truth will reign, righteousness will prevail, peace will encircle the globe, even though the truth will be everywhere available to them, with all of that, men still love their sin. And that's the lesson that's taught. Even though the environment is completely in order, men still love their sin. And they'll reject Christ even while he's present. And so after a thousand years in a perfect environment, the utopia, paradise is restored. Satan comes out and look at verse eight and he'll come out to what? What does he come out to do? He's the great deceiver. He'll do the things he's always been doing. He'll deceive the nation, the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. And there's so much here we can do. We can look at, but we're just doing a panoramic look at this. He'll deceive the earth, Gog and Magog, together, them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore, right? Because the scriptures teach us that the heart of man is what? Continually what? Wicked, right? And so it just begins to reveal this thing. That's how many there are, as many as the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And what happens? And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown not into the bottomless pit, not into the abyss anymore. Okay, that was temporary judicial act. This is eternal. He's thrown into the lake of fire of brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay? Just, I mean, I can't even, I, I my skin just cringes when I think about that dreadful situation, even for Satan. Right? Now, you have that revolt of society, and it's, it's, it's this is it's it goes very rapid from here. It's it's a rapid fire presentation. The deception comes here in verse eight. The nations are deceived. 
The war is in verse 9, and halfway through verse 9, there's that destruction, and then into verse 10, where Satan himself is dealt with eternally. Okay? And then the final feature is in verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophets are also, and they're tormented. Satan, he's thrown in that lake of fire and brimstone. It's prepared for him. It's, prepared. it's not prepared for man, by the way. It was prepared for Satan. God never prepared. He joins all his cronies there. He's, you know, and his head, remember, in the garden, Satan's head is finally bruised. His head is bruised. In John 12, 31, it says, Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. And this is that event. The ruler of this world, and this is the final hell. This is the end of redemptive history. In Revelation 14, 11, it says, Those who drink the wine of the wrath of God, their smoke will go up forever and ever. So the demise of Satan, the destruction of Satan, it was assured at the cross, and here it's executed. So next we're going to look at a transition here. Verse 11, beginning in verse 11. And here we're going to look at the reign of the saints. And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found, and I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, the dead and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one, according to their deeds. And it just, it just goes on and on. It's like there's no escape. You can run. But you can't, even death doesn't, you can't even hide. Every element of death, whether it's in Hades, you know, wherever it is. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he's thrown in that same lake. It wasn't designed for man. But if your name is not in the book of life, that will be your destiny. It's a passage that ultimately consigns all of the ungodly of all ages to an eternal hell. We are not dealing with his redemptive history anymore. We've stepped over into eternal things now. Look at verse 12. The books were open, it says, and another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged, uh, the things written in the books according to their deeds. And in verse 13, they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Um, judgment then was made against, by the way, an absolute standard. I was talking to someone about that here today. And what is that standard? God's judgment is based on a standard. And his standard is holiness. It's perfection. And anyone who ever violates one law of God falls short of it. The Apostle Paul tells us what? All have what? Sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The only hope would be if their record of sin was somehow overruled because resulting in their name being written in the book, the Lamb's Book of Life, indicating that they belong to God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way. That's what the scriptures teach us. When a name goes in the book, we put our faith in Christ. Those lists of sins that are against us, Colossians says, it says they are erased. Those sins are blotted out. But if you never come to the Lord Jesus Christ, well... Your name never gets put in the book. Serious matter. A serious matter. So that brings us to this next section here. The new heaven and the new earth. Redemptive history is over. 
We're entering into the new heavens and the new earth. Ecclesiastic 3 says that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. And that is to say that there's a longing for eternal things in our heart. And these first, we're going to kind of just, we're going to go through this rapidly. Some of it we're not going to touch. You're going to have to go home and do it yourself. But let's look at some of the first things here. First of all, John saw the appearance of the new heaven and the new earth. He says here in verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, what did they do? They passed away, right? And there is no longer any sea. Now remember, as the chapter opens, all the sinners of all the ages are gone. Sin is eradicated. Can you comprehend that? I mean, it is amazing to think of this time. They're gone, you know, whether they were demons, including Satan. They're all in a lake of fire and they're confined. They're anguishing forever. We don't have to deal with that. Verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from where? Out of heaven from God. You know, I'll just take a side note here. I've listened to a fellow and he says, you know, we all talk, we're going to go to heaven. You know, if you're a Christian and you die, you're going to go to heaven. Well, I don't know. That's not what it says here. It says heaven comes to you. And you're not, it doesn't say you're going to heaven. It says it's the what? The new what? Jerusalem. Why? Who's in Jerusalem? Who's in the new Jerusalem? The Lord Jesus Christ. Right? So anyway, we won't go dealing with that for right now. This, by the way, is, is, is the capital city of heaven, the new Jerusalem. And this is where the Father lived. And it's, it's where God dwells. It's, where, it's what Jesus referred to when he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. That's where he was. That's where he was talking about. This is the dwelling place of all believers. Wonderful. A wonderful concept here. And verse 3 tells us, about a supreme reality. Look at what it says. It says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. That's the supreme reality. That God would tabernacle with men. The tabernacle of God is with men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. Three times it says that God's going to be among them. That's the supreme reality seen in verse 3. Verses 4, 5, and 6, we begin to see, actually 7 and 8, we begin to see the changes in humanity or the changes in the servants of God, the changes in life uh, that happen in eternal that eternal dwell in verse four. Look what John says. It says he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no longer any death, no mourning, crying, pain. All those first things, all those things are wiped away. They passed away. And what John is saying is it's, you know, whatever it's going to be like, it's not going to be like it is here. It's, it's going to be different. All those things which make up life here which are so much a part of our lives here, are not going to be there. The negative features will all be gone. Imagine. Just imagine that. And by the way, this is the catalog right here, verse 4, the catalog of no mores, right? No mores. And then John adds a positive statement in verse 5, and he doesn't really give any detail about it or anything, which is fine with me. It's good enough. And he who sits on the throne says, behold, I'm making all things new. It's not like that anymore. They're all going to be new. This earth isn't going to be like we know it now. And that's, that's all that he really says about it. In Luke 21, we read, heaven and earth will pass away, right? But my words, they will not. There's going to be an end to the universe, but they'll never be an end to the truth of God. It will always be there. So he says this in verse 6. He said to me, again, this is the voice in the throne, probably the voice of the Lord Jesus. Some writers have said, I would have 
I would have red lettered these words, <laughs> right? Um, <clears throat> Again, the voice from the throne, the voice of God. It is what? Done. Have you heard that before? It is done. Te telesta. It's finished. Right? And that's very much the same words that the Lord Jesus used on the cross when he said it is finished. It's one word in Greek. And when Jesus said it on the cross, he'd achieved the redemptive purposes of God for his sin bearing. He had done it. He had done it. But when it says it here, it's really done. Right? It's completely done. It was done for sin bearing. The satisfaction for my sin and your sin was done on the cross. But now it's completely wiped out of existence. That's what the new heaven and the new earth is going to be like. It's the end of redemptive history. And then he says, I am the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. In other words, You know, it's because, uh, you know, it's the end because I'm in charge, Jesus says. (laughs) I'm in charge now for real. I've created it. I've made it. I'm in charge. God is simply, he's unfolding in all of human history, his sovereign purpose and plan. His sovereign. Remember Jesus in the beginning of Revelation in chapter 1, in verse Eight, he says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And then over in, in chapter 22 of the Revelation, verse I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That's it. He's everything. Well, look at verse 6 again. In the middle of um, verse 6. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water and life. With, and by the way, there's so much here. There's no sea, but there's a spring of water flowing out, right? There's, you know, anyway, I can't go there. And he says, "I, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. And then verse seven, he who overcomes shall inherit these things and I will be his God and he'll be my son. So in these two verses, we have two descriptive phrases that that tell us who is going to be in heaven. Let's take a look at them. The one who thirsts and the one who overcomes. Those are the descriptive phrases. Let's look at them individually. Um, And by the way, the one who thirsts. Is that reminiscent of some other statement in the early ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ? What did he say? Blessed are those who what? Hunger and thirst for what? For righteousness, they shall be satisfied. And it's completed here. It's fulfilled here. It goes all the way back to the teaching of Jesus. And it even goes further than that. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, it was an invitation of salvation given by Isaiah. And he says, oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come by and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. In verse 2, Isaiah 55, verse 2, and delight yourself in abundance. Amazing. So that's one who's going to be in heaven, one who thirsts. And then the one who overcomes. Secondly, it belongs to those who overcomes. And it's not enough for you to just know that you, you have a need. There's something else involved. He who overcomes, well, what does that mean? Look, in, look with me, if you would, in uh, John, 1 John chapter 5, just back a few pages. And it's a very familiar passage here. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 says this. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Now listen to this. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So you say, okay, I have faith. Okay, you you mean faith is what overcomes, right? Well, you might say, well, I have it. Well, that's not just, I mean, it's not quite enough just to say that you have faith because the next verse tells us your faith needs to be 
qualified. Look at verse 5. Your faith needs to be qualified. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the overcomer. The one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. It is, it's faith in the person of Jesus Christ. It's faith in his provision in the gospel. And that's the issue. Those are going to be the ones found in heaven. Look at verse 8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and moral persons, sorcerers, idolaters and liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death, right? And this is obviously extremely solemn warning to us today. It's serious. And you'll notice it, it doesn't just say those who don't believe, right? It's not just those who don't don't believe. It doesn't just say that. It identifies the character of the people that will not be there. A persistent characteristic in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You'll remember the Apostle Paul would write, And do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkens, nor revelers, nor swindlers. Characteristics. None of these shall inherit the kingdom of God. They're going to be outside. They're going to be outside. Now, let me remind you, because it's all throughout Scripture that these people who live these lives characterized like this, they're not Christians. Somebody tells you they're a Christian and they're living like this. I, I, I'm not judging them. Okay? It's here. It's obvious. Right? They're not Christians and, and, and they will not be in the kingdom and they won't be in the holy city. They won't be in the new Jerusalem. They won't be there because... At the end of verse 8, their part is where? In the lake that burns forever. That's their part. And that's the second death. And it's worse than the first death. See, the first death is a spiritual death. But this one here, the second, it's banishment from God. See, we live dead in our sins and trespasses, but we still have an approach. Through the Lord Jesus Christ. At that time, there will be no more. And that's a very solemn, traumatic time. Well, you know, Jesus had made a wonderful promise to those who believe in him. Remember, he said, in my house, in my father's house, there's many mansions. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself where I am that you'll be also. Right? John 14. So here, in fact, the Father's house is being described. The Father's house is being described. The next thing that we, we, we come into is um, we start looking at some of the character. Go back to Revelation chapter 20, 21. We start looking at some of the characteristics of the city. And I don't want to, we don't have time for that because I'm going to close here right now. And you can look at it yourself. But, you know, you have, you have, you know, the, the, you have uh, the bride, you see the city, the glory, all of the, there, there's, I mean, there's, there's unapproachable things here. There's stones here that we don't even know about. There's types of jewels. We have no idea what they are. There's gates. There's foundations and it's all glorious and it's all being radiated by the glory of God. Right. There's there's the first from from uh, verses nine uh, through twenty one. You have the description of the external habitation. Right. The, the outside of Jerusalem, there's walls. It's a it's a place of safety. And then from verses twenty one um, all the way down to chapter 22, verse 
or actually uh, through 27, there's that internal, what it looks like on the inside, that there's no light, there's no temple, there's no sun, there's no moon. It's just the glory of God. It's amazing to think about it. And then in chapter 22, verses um, 3 through 5, you see the inhabitants, the saints, and what they're like as they're in that temple. But we have we, we want to pick up over here in uh, chapter 22, down in verse 6. I'm going to scroll through about 15 pages here. Okay. And what we're going to see here is that there is, for the believer, for all of these things that we've talked about, there needs to be a response. And that very response is elicited here in the scriptures. In Revelation uh, chapter 22, in verses 6 through 12, there's the believer's immediate response, what he should do. Now, we just all that we just did was just the first part of the epilogue. You know, in these closing book, there's two parts. The first part from verse 6 to 12 in chapter 22, it it deals with the Christian's response. What should the Christian do? And then amazingly, and with the mercy of God, again being portrayed, the last part is directed to unbelievers, and it's an invitation. Another invitation. After everything is said and got done, God says, now you know what's going on. What are you going to do? If you're a believer, what are you going to do? If you're an unbeliever, what are you going to do? Let's look at those Real quick, verses 6 through 7. The character of these verses um, is very rapid fire. Let's, uh, let's read that real quick. We have time for that. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words and the prophecy of this book. Now, I, John, saw and I heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down and worshiped before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, see that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and your brethren, the prophets and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his works. And this text is pregnant with urgency. Urgency, specifically pressuring every believer we, to think quickly and immediately about the truths that we've been talking about. And the key word in this text is come quickly. And you'll notice, look in verse 7. In verse 7, behold, I am coming quickly. You'll notice it in verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly. In verse 20, yes, I am coming quickly. And the term here is taku, where we get tachometer or taku. Uh, tachometer. What, is it, what do we use a tachometer for? Anybody know? Speed. To measure speed, right? To see the RPMs. And that's the idea here. It's quick. It's going to be quick. And, uh, uh, and what he's telling us is that the Lord is coming soon. It's short. It's coming hastily. And you say, well, wait a minute. This book was written in AD 96. We're nearly 2,000 years later. What do, you, what do you mean he's coming? He, he's, he's coming quick. Well, that's from a human viewpoint. But we understand what God's vantage point is because the scriptures teach us and they remind us with the Lord a thousand years is as a what? So it's only been two days for him. <laughs> and the days is a thousand years, Right. So that's that's his viewpoint. We get it all kind of messed up. You know, the early believers, they believed he was going to come in their lifetime. You can read it all through the scriptures. And there was an urgency in the epistles. There was an urgency in the book of Acts, in the Gospels. He's coming. And they laid that scenario out and, and they, it took their proper place. And and they lived as if he was coming any moment. Amazing. 
Now look at the end of verse 6. These are the things which must shortly take place. And here he's referring to the whole book, all of this stuff. Everything we've just talked about, the whole book of Revelation, the churches, the judgments, the seals, the bowls. Okay, these things are going to go quickly. And sweeps back over that. And, 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 you know, God hasn't given us an exact timetable, but we know it's soon. We know that it's imminent. These things, he says, they're real, by the way. This vision is real. These things that are going to happen just the way Revelation tells us that they're going to happen. So the question is, if we know all that, what is the believer supposed to do about it? Real quickly. The first response, there should be immediate obedience. Look at what it says in uh, chapter, uh, the angel spoke in... um, and seven, and behold, I am coming quickly. And by the way, it's it's not an angel who's coming, is it? No, no. it's the Lord Jesus. He says it's, it's Christ coming. And so in that section, it's Christ speaking. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. That's immediate obedience. That's the first thing the Christian should do. Second Peter 3.11 says, because you're. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. You're so eager and you're anticipating it. You know it's coming. And so you live holy lives. Second, second Peter chapter 3 verse 14 says, Beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. That's it. Immediate obedience. The next thing is immediate worship. What did John do? When he realized all of this, verse 8, and John, and, and I, John, and there's, there's that and again, the chronological, and I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I saw them, what did I do? I fell down, and I worshiped. Yeah, the angel said, you don't worship me, but I was thinking about that this morning in the Lord's Supper. I don't know about you, but when I come to the Lord's Supper, I want to bring something, because... It's my responsibility, not my responsibility, but it's in response to his ability to redeem me. And I want to worship him. So there's immediate worship that's going on there. The, 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 the third immediate response to Christ's imminent truth that he's coming and it's, it's imminent is an, is an immediate proclamation. Look at what it says in verse 10. And he said, do not seal up what the words of this of the prophecy of this book and emphasizing the immediacy of it. This is not a message that should be hidden. We are to preach the gospel. That's the believer's responsibility. Way back in chapter one, verse 11, it says, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things written in it. For the time is near. And if you don't preach the gospel, you forfeit that blessedness. And not only that, it's sinful to not preach the gospel. So that's the response. Verse 12. Behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me. I'm coming quickly. His eminence in Mark 13. In Mark 13, it says, take heed, keep on the alert. For you do not know when the appointed time is. I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. And so there will come a time for reward. Uh, and because of that, we look forward to that judgment seat, don't we? We look forward to that. And just real quickly, as a conclusion, this is a sweeping panorama of the prophecy. And, and, it's, and it, this is absolute certainty. And the book of Revelation Closes. It's amazing. It closes with an invitation. It demands a right response. Look at verse 13. Follow as I read. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes and they have the right to the tree of life. And may enter by the gates. And by the way, those go look at that. 
the gates. The gates in New Jerusalem, not only are they big, huge, pearly things, and they're probably 72 feet thick, and they're, they're tall, and it's a cube, and it's spherical, but the one amazing thing is they're always open. Access. Access to the presence of God. Anyway, that didn't mean to do that. He says, he says, blessed are those who wash their robes that may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers, the immoral persons, the murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bride of morning star and the spirit and the bride say, what? Are you the bride? Say, come, right? And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. It doesn't cost you anything. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them from the words of the book of this prophet, God will take away or uh, I skip. I testify everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them from the words of this book, God will take away the part of the tree of life. I skipped the part. But look at this. Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Now, first of all, let's look at this. This is an invitation. There's an invitation. And then not only an invitation, there's incentives. Why should you come? Why should you come? And the invitation itself is in verse 17. Let's just take it apart. Give me two minutes, okay? And then we're going to close. Okay? It's in verse 17. And then, you know, the incentives that drive people is going to be all around. The first part is the spirit and the bride calling for Christ to come. The second part is calling on believers to come. Now, first of all, why does the Holy Spirit desire? Why does the Holy Spirit want Jesus to come. Why would the Holy Spirit be saying, come, come, come? Well, there's two sides. First of all, the negative side, you know, throughout all the years, and we know it, Lord's Supper, we talked about it this morning through time, up until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, men and women of the world have continued to reject Christ. They ignore Christ. They deny Christ. They mock him. They blaspheme his, the work of the Holy Spirit through him, you know, and the work of the Holy Spirit is solely to point us to Christ. But men have denied all of that. They've went on and on. So when the Lord Jesus says, I, I come, and, and the striving, the grieved, crenched, blasphemed, agonizing Holy Spirit, what he's saying is, come, subdue your enemies and mine, judge sinners, end this long battle. Produce conviction. In the lives of the unbeliever. But there's a positive side to it too. It's his desire is to. Is the work of the spirit as as you know. The, the work of the spirit is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he shows us Christ. He points to us. And obviously the last time that the world saw Jesus lifted up was when? In Calvary where he was lifted up and he was murdered there. He was murdered there. And the Holy Spirit desires to see his fellow member of the Trinity extended in the beauty of splendor. He wants that unity back. Not that he's not unified, but he wants the work to be complete and Jesus to be glorified. But look at the second half of verse 17. And let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come let the one who wishes take the water without cost and there's a change here this is the invitation not for christ to come but the change here is to come to christ the change is to come to christ notice it carefully the first one says first phrase and let the one who hears say come who does this refer to it's not that difficult simply the one who hears the message he that has an ear. Simply it means one who's listening. The one who's listening and believing. The one who's hearing with understanding. The one who hears the spirit and the bride say come. The one who hears Jesus say I am coming. Let that one come. 
and join in. That's the invitation. Let that one chime in and say, come. And by the way, he can't chime in and say, come until he comes to Christ. And that's the whole implication. Come to Christ. Well, what does thirst indicate? It, it, it indicates a recognition of a need. When you say you're thirsty, you're identifying your need, right? And when a person, when a sinner understands they are thirsty and they are hungry and they don't find satisfaction in this world, Jesus says, come, right? Jesus invites them. This is his invitation. Here you have, by the way, that's your prerequisite to salvation, is understanding that you have a need. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, right? Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 5, starts with a spiritual hunger. Now, just real briefly surrounding that invitation in verse 17, there's reasons. Look what it says in verse 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the gates into the city. And, of course, we know those things are in heaven. The tree is in heaven. The gates are all there. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers, everyone who loves and practices lying. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes. First Peter 1.8 says, knowing you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood. The blood cleanses for sin. Right? He says in verse 14, Blessed, happy are those who are washed, their robes are washed, that they may have the, and it gives them the right to that tree of life. The tree of life, where is it? We already talked about it. It's in the New Jerusalem. And he says, and they may enter into the, sin, into the cities. Well, Bottom line, I think, what we see in this invitation is that if your sins are not forgiven, you won't be in the New Jerusalem. It's that simple. You won't be there. This is the invitation that's offered, and it's offered to you by the Supreme Being, by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In verse 15, I, I, you know, I believe our Lord's still speaking, and he continues to discuss heaven. He says, outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the immoral persons, the murderers, idolaters, everyone who loves and practices lying. And just, just a word about this. You know that word dogs is found in Deuteronomy 23, and it has to deal with homosexual male prostitutes who were considered the lowest of the low, the greatest of all sinners, right? There are many other things those terms describe and and those sins, and they will not be forgiven. But I want to close by saying this. Even the lowest of the low can be forgiven during this time of God's redemptive history. First Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, we already talked about it. He said, neither fornicators nor idolaters or adulterers or, or effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, None of these swindlers, liars, shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. But verse 11 is wonderful. Because look what 1 Corinthians 6.11 says. And such were some of you, but you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amazing. Amazing. It can happen to anyone who comes. The invitation is from the supreme being of the universe. Right? It's an exclusive heaven. Inside are those who have been washed. Outside, those who haven't. Where do you sit? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the words that you give us. We thank you that you have given us insight to history, to this temporal world, to the work of your redemptive history on into eternity. 
And you've offered us a spot in eternity. I pray this morning, Father, that each person under the sounds of your word here take that invitation seriously. Are you in the kingdom of God? If not, the Lord Jesus says, come. He's ready to receive you. We thank you, Father, for that work that the Lord Jesus has done in obedience to you on our behalf. In his name we pray.